You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Socola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Will Reynolds, founder and acting VP of Innovation at Seer Interactive. Will's been leading the charge to leverage big data to break down silos between SEO, pay-per-click, and traditional marketing. Will, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You want to give a quick overview of uh, like a 30-second? What is Seer? Seer is a digital marketing agency with headquarters in San Diego and Philly, but everybody's remote now and people are moving all over the country. And basically what we try to do is understand, uh, we believe that people are searching, are looking for answers, and we want to be the people that help them find the best answers to their questions. It's that simple. Love it. Now, before we get into the serious part of the interview, I've got one really important question for you. What's the first album you ever owned and in what format was it? So I got them at the same time. So it wasn't just one. Okay. Um, but I got LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out on nice. CD <laughs> and Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2. Bought them at the same time. And they were both on CD the first time? Yes. Oh, you are far more advanced than I was in my first uh, official LP world. Nice. But Billy Joel, always a favorite LL Cool J. Fun stuff. All right. Now, from there, tell me. In your role with Seer Interactive, who do you need to influence? You know, these days, as our VP of Innovation, which is where I spend most of my time, uh, it's mostly the people in the industry. I'm trying to figure out how to help people to see that there's a better way to solve the problem that they're currently solving. And that is very difficult. Why? You know, I think it's a cop-out to say people are averse to change. I think it's just a cop-out, right? Oh, people don't like change. Um, So I'm still exploring that. I'm still trying to understand when you see something so clear as a better way, and then you're getting buy-in from people to some extent that it's a better way, but you're not able to sell those projects. You learn a lot about change and change management and how to get people to... So here's the thing I would say that I've learned in this, and I think it may be a strength of mine, is the speed by which I'm willing to abandon my expertise so what happens is, is someone once challenged me in my own company to go head to head on a project and he had a new way of doing it and he had me with all my 20 years of experience do the same task, trying to hit the same objective, which is understand what customers are searching for and what is our likelihood of being able to rank for it. And he had it done with a computer program and he destroyed me. And instantly I was like, we need to change our business. And mm-hmm. I think what I find is, is that our egos get built up on our years of experience. Like how often do we lead in with, I've been doing this for 20 years. And then for me in that instance, I realized that having more data could invalidate things that I believed about search over 20 plus years. And that was a very big moment for me. Yeah. Those, those aha moments can really be quite the the awakening, aren't they? Yeah, we have them. But then I think when it challenges our expertise, it's hard to listen to them because everything we've been told is that the years we've been putting in is what makes us great. And then when somebody comes along with much less experience than you and more information or more data and beats you, 
you typically want to dig in and try to invalidate their findings. And I think the speed by which I'm willing to accept those findings is actually a bit of a strength. So now I'm just trying to do that with other people when I'm trying to influence them to come along with the way that I believe things should be done. I think that's the the challenge of being driven by ego versus driven by curiosity. You know, it's true, but you don't really know it until somebody challenges something where you're considered to be one of the top in your space. So like, you know, people flying all over the world, I speak at all these conferences and all that BS. So therefore, like the data out there kind of says, like, I'm one of the top rated speakers in our space consistently for 20 years. So that tells me that I'm pretty good at it, right? I don't need to just go around being like, I'm sure. great. Like, no, there's some data out there that says I'm pretty good at it. And to get beat by a computer in 30 minutes on something that took me six hours, and then it was so much more thorough and better, I just had to be like, experience, because I'm about solving the problem. And once I realized that solving the pro- I could do a better job for my clients by abandoning my experience, but that really became a mind F for the client <laughs> because everything that they've ever thought was, if I can get Will to come in and talk to me about this, he's got 20 years of experience and I'm going in like, no, I need data first because I just realized how wrong I can be when I rely on my gut. Yeah. But see, that's a great example. I think your experience is useful, but you're not letting your ego get in the way. It's like, oh, my experience has to be more important because that makes me feel special as opposed to, all right, well, let's put that together experience with data together, I think is a powerhouse combination. So sounds like you've got it all. Trying. What's the biggest communication challenge that you're facing today? Is, is that it? Figuring out how to get clients to see things in a different way? What's the biggest challenge? You know, I think I struggle today with the thing I've always struggled with, which is how to properly take what's in my heart and what I feel and make sure that it comes out of my mouth in a way that doesn't confuse mm, people. Yes. <laughs> I think I've struggled with that because I know what I feel you know, in my heart and sometimes the way that it comes out of my mouth lends a lot more confusion and clarity. Sure, sure. And that's a challenge for everybody, right? Everything, it makes sense in my brain. And, but often either A, what makes sense to me doesn't make sense to you because of, for example, what I often call the expert's curse, right? You don't understand, you don't know what everybody else doesn't know, what's not obvious to everyone else because you've got 20 years of experience. So certain things that you just take for granted, you don't realize other people have no concept of whatsoever. So there's those assumptions, right? And then, of course, we all just, on the flip side, have those moments where we hear something come out of our own mouths and we think to ourselves, that sounded different in my head. <laughs> so true. So, so true. So typically between those two situations, you know, we, I think we all have those moments of, okay, in my head, this makes sense. Why is it not making sense to you? And how do I make it make sense to you, right? I mean, it's funny, we both were talking before the show started that we both have very young children. And in my many, many, many moons ago in my former life, I used to teach elementary school. And I used to, I always felt like the, the challenge of teaching elementary school was not the intellectual challenge for me of the content itself, of course. Okay, three times two is six, whatever. But it was the challenge of getting the square peg of three times two equals six into the round hole of an eight-year-old brain. And like, what, three and two, that's supposed to be five. What do you mean to six? You just rotated the symbol and something doesn't. So that's the challenge, right? How to get them to get it, no matter how clear it is in your mind. Yeah. How do you look at, so I also was a teacher at one point in my career. How do you think that being a teacher has helped you with where you are today and having that background? Oh, we're flipping the tables here. You're the interviewee becoming interviewer, a teacher becoming <laughs> I'm subject. I'm trying to learn. <laughs> I'm trying to learn. I Actually, I think it's fabulous because- 
my graduate degrees are actually in, in pedagogy and in science of teaching, cognitive learning, those kinds of things. So it's all about helping me understand what makes something go in one year and out the other versus what makes something stick. So it's all become a huge part, you know, whether I'm trying to teach times tables to eight-year-olds or teach executives about, you know, how to frame something differently and why that approach isn't going to work, why that that pitch isn't going to stick in an investor's mind, why this is or that isn't uh, isn't effective presence. It's still the same principles of learning and why language uh, is language. So there, there's my little 30 second response. Yeah, no, I didn't want to turn the tables too much on you. No, that's fun. What did you teach? Economics, high school. Got it. Got it. Much more uh, math than my, well, still times two is six is math. But uh, that's about the level of math I can handle, which is why I'm a linguist and not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't great at the math part of economics. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, there, there you go. So we'll have a conversation later on with all of your students from another time. From there, what specific communication skills did you have to develop in order to build this company and be successful? You know, what's interesting is I had an advisor, and he still is an advisor, a great guy. And one day we're sitting in a conference room, a glass conference room. This was when the company was much smaller. And I'm talking something to him and he was so great at sniffing out BS, you know, and being like, really well, like we've been talking about this thing for X number of months and you say it's moving, but I don't see evidence of it moving. He goes, okay, well, how about this? How about I get out of my seat right now and go up to six of your employees and ask them how what they're working on right now connects to what you just said was the vision of the company. And he gets out of the seat and he walks over to one person and I'm like, you don't have to do it. Right. And it was one of those things where it made it very clear to me that mm. I was not communicating because it's funny. Right. I'm like, oh, yeah, like I'm doing this thing. And he's like, you have to constantly put yourself in the place of the recipient of that information. And I think that his training on that early on was super helpful for me to say, OK, how's this going to land if I didn't have all this experience and I didn't have all the things in my brain? I didn't have all the things that I know. How would that land? So that was one. And then I also had a sales coach early on. And he used to make me ask seven questions hmm. before I could state any answers. Interesting. And he was unpacking my sales style. So nothing's better than getting your ass beat by somebody <laughs> who's not as good as you are at your job. So I had a company I was competing with early on when I started Sear, and they were getting deals. And I'm like, they're shipping all their work to India. Like, they weren't like really like the guy that was running the business was not didn't come from a digital marketing background at all. Like, he used to be a carpenter or something. I don't know what it was, right? Sure. So I was like, I've been doing this longer than him. I've worked on much bigger brands than him. I've seen more than he has. Why is he beating me in sales calls? So then that made me go get a sales coach. My sales coach ended up being like, because you talk too much. He's like, when somebody asks you, tell me about Sear, you're going way over here about like how you started the business and you haven't qualified like why they're asking. Mm. So his big thing was, I want you to ask people seven questions before you can make any statements. And it was really crazy to go through the struggle. And I had a piece of paper and it'd be seven blank lines. And every time if it was, hey, well, tell me about Sear. Well, what is it that you want to know? Oh, well, you know, do you work in industries like mine? Well, is that going to be part of your decision? Right, on how you choose an agency. Because if I don't have that, does that disqualify me? Mm. And you see how quickly I've already gone through three questions. Whereas back in the day, I would have been like, I started it in my apartment. And then you would have went off on some tangent that completely missed what that person's version of yeah. tell me about Sear is. So that stuck with me my entire 
life. I have read more books on how to ask better questions mm. than probably anybody. What's the best book? If you had to make a recommendation right now, what book would you say that people need to read? Power Questions. Mm. It was really good. It was a quick read. And I use some of those tactics every day. I'm about to add something to my reading list, I think. Do you remember Super who it's by? Quickly. Don't remember. All right. We'll figure it out and we'll uh, add it to the show notes so people can take a, a look at it and go back later. So power questions. All right. How to ask better questions for sales. Excellent. Thank you. Then with all that, what's one big mistake you made or a lesson you had to learn the hard way? Or was that it? Those kind of, That uh, sales conversation of sort? Well, I mean, that hurt because I knew I could help people solve their problem better than this competitor. Mm -hmm. But I was losing to that competitor, sure. which meant that that customer got a subpar yeah. experience. And that felt like a major, major failure to me. I think the thing that I'm currently working on is, and we talked about this uh, at one point earlier, I'm now trying to figure out how do you communicate to a company that you are capping your upside potential for the growth of the business for the rest of the life of the business because there's not a good model. Say that again because that was really packed. So say, you're working on, say it again. So I'll just use numbers, nice easy numbers. So let's say, um, I'm, let's say I communicate to the company, let's say that Sear makes $10 million a year in profit, right? And I want to communicate to the company that like the company will never retain more than $1 million of that, which means I'll have $9 million a year given our growth trajectory to be able to give back to the people in the company who helped to build that, right? Mm. When you deal with the population that I deal with, like you start talking about dollars and, you know, at certain levels, it becomes very difficult for people to grasp on what that means. They also can't fully understand exactly what that means, sure. right? So I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out and work on how do you articulate to an organization that the, the hours you put in to grow this business from here on out I will, I will not get the added value of because I'm capping what I get no matter how much our company grows. I'm trying to figure that one out. I got to figure out how to convey that properly because if I do, there's a set of behaviors that will change it, Sierra. If I get it wrong, people will kind of do the same thing they've been doing and like say, oh, okay, I guess our bonuses will be bigger. And it's like, no, nah, it's different than that. What's the difference? How would you define the difference? Uh, that's what I'm working on. Don't <laughs> ask me that tough question. Uh, no, you know, I... I've done this a few times in different ways, and I'm still working on how I'm going to articulate this, but I'm trying to actually sit with people and show them their past bonuses and how they would change, and then articulate what they can do themselves in their role to try to move those numbers. Because if I can get a whole 200-person organization all thinking, well, if I turn the lights off when I leave, that's going to give us a little more X. And someone else is going, well, if I spend more time trying to automate this process for everybody in the company, that does a little more X. I can only imagine where our company would go. And everybody's like, Will doesn't get any upside from that. Like, if we all come together and help this business to grow, Will doesn't get any more of that. Like, it all comes back to us. So therefore, we should all take this moment in time and run really hard at that growth is what I'm hoping to try to convey and then hope that those behaviors change as a, not change, but that people take that a little more seriously. But we'll see. We'll see. I'll probably mess it up. But luckily, my president, Crystal, is really good at cleaning up what's in my heart and what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're sort of doing a little bit of myth busting that for a lot of companies, as the company grows, as, as revenues and profits grow in particular, that the proportions of how much of that extra profit go into the president's or the founders or, or whoever is right at the top into their pockets also tends to grow 
far faster than how it grows to everybody else. And you're saying, nope, here's the cap right here. It will never grow into my pocket more than this. So the more the revenue grows, the more the company grows, the more that's left to go into your pocket and as the collective. Like, is that, am I hearing that correctly? Yep, you're hearing it perfectly. And the other thing I want to do is also do that in case of an exit or a change in control. So if I were to sell the business, I'm also going to cap. So it's not like, you know, when you're like, Mark Zuckerberg takes a dollar salary, you're like, yeah, dude. Okay. But you have like, you know, you get like a billion dollars a year in stocks. For me, I'm also capping what I would get in the instance that I were to ever sell the company or if the company were ever to, to be acquired so that people can also say the long-term value of me working in this company and all these other people working on this company is also going to come to me, not just these quarterly bonuses or whatever I'm going to get. That's actually table stakes to what would happen if we really can grow the business in the direction that I'd like to see us go. Nice. Nice. All right. Now, Will, this brings us to the listener 24-hour influence challenge. So given what we've discussed so far, this is your chance to speak directly to the listeners and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within the next 24 hours to have more influence. How do you want to challenge our listeners today? Oh, I would do for you all what I mentioned somebody did for me, which is it's hard to influence somebody if you don't know anything about them. So therefore, my challenge would be the next time somebody asks you a question, try to respond with three questions before you answer it. It was the best advice I ever got in my career, and uh, it's helped me to do pretty well. And I think it'll help a lot of other people as well. I'm going to piggyback on that too, and I'm going to qualify that. And you tell me if I'm if I'm going on the right direction. When you ask those questions, listen to the answers and take those answers into account when either formulating the next question and or your answer afterwards. I feel like there are people who will go into autopilot and follow the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law with a mental checklist saying, okay, I asked my first question. Now I'm going to ask my second question. Now I'm going to ask my third question. Okay, now is it my turn? And that's- Yeah. It's like an interrogation versus a a, um, conversation, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's so often where people make the mistake when they try to get better at asking questions is it becomes- okay, I got these three questions. How was your day? How was this? How was that? that, that, that? And you're like, no, that's not really it. The idea is to let it marinate in, hear what the person said and make your second question applicable to what their first, to what they want, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it always sucks when somebody gives you the interrogation version of questions instead of the conversation version. Sure, sure. And, and or the perfunctory version, like the, let me ask you these three questions so that I can make it look like I listened to you for three minutes and I've done my job, Right. Isn't that how we often have a lot of conversations? That's even worse because it's disingenuous. It's, it's like you don't really, and you know, people smell that a mile away. So it actually does the opposite effect is now someone's like, you don't really care. So it's why asking somebody how they're doing and not wanting that answer, I believe is super disingenuous. I also think it's, you know, defaulting to, oh, things are great. Like it's also a little super disingenuous unless it's true that things are great. Right. You know, we started off chatting today and I was like, no, things are great. Why? Because things were great. I just saw my son go off to school and we talked about that. But so often I think those defaults make it be like, "Ah, if that's just small talk for you, then you're not really that invested in what I'm about to say. So let's just get on to the business of it. Yes. A lot of it is also about mindfulness. We're so busy. Our mind is in so many different places at one time that we often have a hard time just focusing on the person we're speaking to and just listening to what they're saying without having half of our brain be on, okay, how much time is left in this? I got to get moving on to this and that and the other thing. And I got these deadlines and I got this email I got to send out. And 
So that we see the other person's lips moving, but we're not really processing what they're saying. Our mind is somewhere else, despite where our body is in the moment. You know what's interesting about that, Laura, is I'm not really a person that gets any anxiety. I just don't. But the one thing that gives me a little bit is when I'm speaking at a conference and I'm done and there's a bunch of people waiting to talk with me and I want to be super engaged with the person I'm talking with because they waited in line, they want to ask a question and I want to be engaged. But then when you get that person who doesn't, who somehow the minute they got in front of you, they forgot how long they waited to talk to you and then they go on and on. So then I'm trying to break eye contact with you to try to eye the next person to be like, try to hold on without making this person feel disrespected. It's the only thing in the world that gives Mm. me anxiety because you see this line of people and you're like, they deserve a certain amount of respect. They're waiting. That's very amazing that they're willing to wait to to talk to me about something. But then I also don't want to show disrespect to the person in front of me because we've all done those conversations where somebody's doing the look away, look away while you're talking. You're like, you're not interested. So why don't you just like, tell me to move on because you keep looking away at something yes. else. Um, so, oh, that always gives me like this like tension when I have that. Yes, habit. it's a good problem to have, but nevertheless, a challenge because you do want to make sure everybody feels heard, which I think is really critical. Yeah. Critical. Yes. All right. Well, this brings us on to the next part of our interview, which is about not just your story, but how you guide others on the journey as head of this company. So when you think about things like succession planning, career advancements in the organization, When thinking about something along the lines of executive presence, otherwise known as command presence or leadership presence, what does it mean to you? That it factor. What's what's the it? Someone really has the leadership something. Or would you know it if they're missing it? You'd be like, this person's so technically awesome, but... It's the ability to connect, at least for me. So I'm a technical person, right? I, I do a technical marketing thing. What I find is that I had to learn to break myself out of that because too often I was talking technical things to an executive. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn and work on that over the years. Mm -hmm. And for me, what I can see in others is when they're able to connect a direct line from what they're talking about to revenue, margin, efficiency, or competition, right? It's like so often people talk about what they do, but they never connect those dots to the person they're talking to as to why they should care. So in my world, like ranking on Google, you literally have to walk somebody through that like, well, ranking on Google should get you more traffic. And if those words are right, that traffic should take outcomes that you see value in, like signing up for a newsletter or listening to a podcast or whatever. And then those people should do another action that should lead to revenue. So often I find that technical people like myself are like, you should get the rankings because in their mind, they've already done all that. Or what's even worse is they get so hyped about the work that they forget to translate it into what makes executives move, right? So as a technical person, I had struggled with that most of my whole life. And I just love watching in a meeting when someone is able to manage up to an executive and talk about, the reason why I'm talking to you about this today is because I think that you can drive a wedge between you and your competitors by 30% in this amount of time. Like, Mm -hmm. I just love the clarity of those kinds of things. And then opening that challenge up to be like, challenge my assumptions. Like, there's a thing when somebody's in a room with an exec and they know their shit. And they're like, I know my stuff and you know your business. So how do we together produce something better? Because I'm going to constantly challenge you and you're going to constantly challenge me. And it's not seen as like, you know what? The weakest people when it comes to communicating with executives have fear because they look at it as like, oh, I don't want to like make this person angry. And you're like, the people that are successful are are there because they've been challenged by people. So I just got off a bunch of calls with some of our uh, clients and over and over again, what I would hear is, you know why I like so-and-so? 
they challenge me. And it's funny, clients don't want people to make them happy. The best clients want people who challenge their thinking. And it's funny to hear how often clients felt like they had to highlight that to me. That like, you know, it's the person in the room, you have a team of 10 people, this one person, they'll call me out on something and be like, what made you think that? Versus like, I guess they want it, so we should do it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm going to ask you a challenging question now. When I think what I heard you say before was that people often, they forget what it is that makes an executive move. Is it they forget or that they lack the perspective? They don't actually know because they're so focused on their own vertical that they don't know what else is out there beyond those walls. They lack the perspective. You're 100% right on that. You know, it's interesting when, so I have a video that I put out a while ago about like minimizing the distance between what's in your head and the assumptions that people are making. Interesting. Where can we find that video? It's on YouTube. I can send it to you. That would be great. Um, Yeah, we'll share it in the links. But what I was saying to people is in the video is I'm like, you have to do everything you can as an executive to give as much information to people so that when they are seeing you do something, they have other bits of information that help them to understand your why. Because if not, they're going to make it up. Like when you see these two dots, you are going to connect them. The more information I can give the organization transparently, the more you can kind of be like, buddy said this, buddy showed us that, right? So like for instance, when COVID hit, we showed people what was in our bank account, right? So now when somebody leaves a meeting and goes, well, uh, I'm not so sure that they're really going to do this. Someone else can be like, wait, like, but they showed us what was in the bank and they showed us how much we have to spend per month. So they showed us that we have a 10 month runway. So why is it right after the meeting? You just don't believe that. Like they showed us the bank account numbers, like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that helps too. What I found is that the more transparent I can be about the business, the more I empower people to be able to connect dots with facts instead of what their friends said or what they heard. Yeah, that's great. Then with regard to that kind of perspective, what are the three most important skills, communication skills that you look for when you're either hiring or looking to promote somebody? It starts with listening. Like I'm in the middle of hiring an executive or two actually right now. And I love people who take the time to listen. Mm-hmm. Something I look for. One of my favorite things to do is pauses. Tells me that you freaking think before you speak. <laughs> what a novel I mean, idea. Well, like here's an example of something. So I have an interview question that I've asked in the past. And it's, and I'll say like, tell me about something, anything that you're really passionate about and explain it to me like I have come from the planet Mars. So you got to take me from step one of what it is. So if your thing you're really into is tennis, you might have to start off saying, there's a game and a game is a thing that people play and people are like you and I, and this game requires you to have a ball and a ball is a round thing filled with air. And we each have rackets and you're like trying to get somebody to take a complex thing and then not make um, assumptions about what you know. And the other thing you get to see, and it helps me disqualify people in their communication style is it's the people. And you're supposed to ask this question really slow because you watch people start to head nod. When you go, tell me about something that you're really passionate about and you can watch them start to fidget because they're not listening to everything else that comes afterwards because they're already processing, oh, what's the thing I'm really passionate about I can tell you about? And then you just watch that. For me, it's one of those slight ticks in communication style that Hmm. says like, oh, with only 20% of the question, you're already like itching to start what you want to say. And actually, you're not listening to the rest of what I'm saying. So therefore, we'll see what comes out of this. So it's one of my favorite things to look for (laughs) when I look at listening is that. 
And then also, I think because of my background as a teacher, I like to see people, and I think this isn't directly communication, but I think it affects communication, is when you care about helping somebody to learn something, the way that you communicate with them, I think, is just so different because you're an active member of helping them to learn something or get a perspective that maybe they didn't before. And I just love when I work with somebody who really, truly cares about growing their team. And you can see it in them because the way that they're going to communicate with somebody who you want to see grow and who you want to see thrive is very different than the way you communicate to somebody who you see as a widget to solve a problem. Yes. Yes. Don't be a widget. There's a good tagline for this show is don't be a widget today. Don't be a widget. Don't be a widget. Now, I think you addressed this previously, but I'm going to ask just in case there's an addendum to the original. With regard to managing up, this is what I like to call my pet peeve question, meaning a pet peeve of yours. When your direct or indirect reports have to present information up to you, what do you wish they would do differently? I wish they would end every slide or every email with the words, I intend to. Mm, Why? Because one, it helps me to learn how aligned we are on solutions. It also teaches them to do things and not sit around and wait for permission. It teaches them, don't look for me to answer your questions. Tell me what you think, right? So often people come to me, well, well, you got all this experience, you've been running the company, you're the CEO, blah, 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 blah. Here's the problem. And they'll lay out the whole problem. And I'm like, can you end that email with I intend to? Yeah. People hate getting those emails from me, but they know what I'm saying, which is I can just say yes to that versus like, I got to write out this whole thing when you already knew the answer. Right. I love and I just wish more people would end their emails and correspondences with I intend to. It sounds like you're conditioning your people to learn to do that more proactively. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the things like you're going to get an email back from me if it's an open ended question with what do you intend to do? Yeah. And I read that in the book, Turn the Ship Around. Oh, Yes. Great book. And that's one of the biggest things I took away from that was um, that's one of the ways you teach people to level up and manage up. So there's a second book for everybody to put in after power questions and then turn the ship around. That was a great book. Yes. I'm going to write that down as well. And we'll put both of those links into the show notes. Well, now this brings us to our speed round. All right. Getting ready to move quickly. So the speed round is some of the most common topics that arise in my coaching and training discussions with clients and in different organizations. And people tend to mistakenly think of some of these issues as black and white, either or choices, which of course they're not. And they also often feel very stuck in these areas with this sense of, I'm the only one who struggles with this. Why is it so hard for me and so easy for everybody else? So we're going to disabuse them of some of these misconceptions, do a little bit of myth busting here. So I'm going to ask you these questions and I want you to first answer me with just a very, either a single word or very short phrase. And then I'll, I'll ask you a little bit of a follow-up question to give a bit more explanation. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. And we want these to be nice, specific references about you. So for example, number one, public speaking, love it or hate it? Love it. Can you give a tip, a little advice to somebody who maybe does not love it as much to help them speak with more confidence? Walk the room before your presentation and talk to people and hear what they want to get out of the session and then address them in your presentation. And for me, it gives me a little bit more of a connection. It makes it feel a little less like I'm talking to a room and more like I'm talking to Laura. Like, oh, when I was talking to you earlier, Laura, remember how you talked about how you want to learn blah, 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 blah. This slide is for people that blah, 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 blah. That connection has always made me feel a little bit better about my presentations. Love it. Love it. Then would you consider yourself an introvert or extrovert? Introvert. 
And what is one of your personal strengths as an introvert? And what's an area for you for growth as an introvert? Something you're still working on. Give me that one again. A strength. So everybody says, well, introverts are good at this or introverts are bad at that. Or I'm not good. I can't because I'm an introvert, because I'm an extrovert, because, because, because. So I want to get rid of all these stereotypes. But the fact is, there are strengths of being both. And there are areas that because we have those natural tendencies, we find we simply have to work on. I mean, I'm an extrovert very naturally. So personally, one thing I'm good at is being comfortable in a room full of strangers. I will always find friends. I will always meet new people and leave feeling like this was a good experience. Whereas sometimes, to reference one of our earlier topics, I need to stop talking and listen more. I get really excited. And what I think is a two-minute story is a 10-minute story. And I need to just learn to stop and listen first, not let my enthusiasm uh, dominate everything. So that's something that I need to work on as an extrovert. How about you as an introvert? The pro is you really find out if you're introverted or extroverted during a pandemic. And what have you discovered about yourself in this pandemic? I, I always knew this about myself. I knew I'm introverted because I could sit here with nobody in my office for three years and work. People are like, well, don't you miss having the people around you? And I'm like, no, I really don't. But like, it's easy to say that when there are people around you. When you've been working out of your office by yourself for seven months, you go, <laughs> yeah, it still feels good to me. Like, I'm still not having any days where I'm just like, man, I wish there was somebody for me to turn around and talk to. Um, but I also think that that's a negative in the sense of, as a leader, I need to have more empathy and understand that, especially for a population of younger folks, this was their social outlet. Mm. And when they're at home, they don't have that. And when they don't have that, that affects their ability to do their jobs. Terrific. Then finally, conflict. Managing and handling conflict. When faced with a potential conflict or a difficult conversation, what is your natural instinct? Is it to want to avoid it or want to address it head on? How are you wired? My natural instinct is to avoid it. Then what but I you, don't do that. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? So we all recognize what our natural tendency, what our how our brains are hardwired to to reflex react, but we can't obviously just let reflex dictate all behaviors, especially the further up you move. So, given that, what have you learned about that tendency and how you need to adjust in order to effectively manage conflict? You know, I think the first thing I realized about myself is I like to build people up. So therefore, I've shied away from negative feedback because you know I would rather take somebody who's less confident and show them how great they are than to take somebody who's overconfident and be like, "You're not as good as you think you are." <laughs> right? Uh, and my sales coach also worked with me on this as part of sales, which was put the in the ways out of the way. What does that mean? So what now, uh, so it's like take the things that are going to get in the way of this deal. Like get them out of the way by talking about them first. Because mm -hmm. his whole approach was the quicker you can get to a no, the earlier you can move on and maybe get to a yes. But if you save those things that make you uncomfortable all the way to the end, like pricing and slide it in at the end, it's like, wait, 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 wait. We talked about all that great stuff for the last hour and you're telling me it's going to cost me $80,000? Right. I'm out. I was going to spend 8000 And it's like, well, shouldn't we get that up front that I'm a high price cost service? Yep. And that like, if that disqualifies me, so be it. So I find even more so with people it's critical. So one of the things that I've learned from an HR standpoint is whenever I'm going to have a tough conversation with somebody, I open up saying this conversation is going to be tough. Mm. And that way, too many people try to sandwich it for lack of a better term. And they try to like, hey, how you doing on those calls? It's like, no, I want to talk to you about something that I saw. This is going to be a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation. That's my way of dealing with my own 
typical natural state of let me put a bunch of nice stuff in. Oh, I like your shirt. And then it's like, and you, and you sucked at this thing, right? <laughs> so, so for me, I think by saying that up front, it buys me a sense of like, you don't have to soften it, Will. Like, let's just get to it. Right. Terrific. Thank you so much, Will. How can people learn more about you and Sierra Interactive? So you can Google me. My name is Will Reynolds with one L. I got all kinds of stuff. I think my YouTube channel uh, is probably a great place to find out a little bit more about me and the way I tick. If any of this stuff was interesting, I think my style on my YouTube channel is also to talk about like very tough things. For instance, like why I chose not to be minority certified, like as a Mm. company, in spite of there being opportunities that were coming. So I try to not just fill the air with just crap about like, you know, it's great. You can do it too. Entrepreneurship. So if anything, I would say if you're into hearing failure stories about entrepreneurship, my blog, uh, which is, I believe uh, on medium and my YouTube channel, are me sharing a lot of things that I suck at and I failed at along the way of building what I built. All right, so we're running out of time here, but I do want to know the the 30-second answer of why you chose not to be minority certified. I wanted to prove to myself I was just as good as everybody else in the world, and I never wanted anybody to think that I was sitting at the table with a bunch of other agencies because somebody somewhere wanted to increase their diversity supplier pool. I wanted everybody to know that I was just as good as them and that they better watch out, and that was it. I have struggled with the same decision as far as being a woman-owned business. Uh, those are always things that we have to choose, right? Difficult. Oh my God. Yeah. So super difficult. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining, for sharing your stories today. Everybody else out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget, of course, to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my quick start guide to mastering the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. Will, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.